0: You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. We'll have a couple more weeks like that that we'll have to do that just because it won't be closed. It's going to be closed to the public, but there's going to be a whole lot of stuff going on around here. So getting ready for the next phase, God, to uh, enlarge, uh, the Bible says enlarge your territory, right? And uh, so we do that, so God can make way. Amen. Can we put our hands together to thank the Lord for His blessings? Hallelujah, Lord, we thank you. Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Amen. And so, some exciting things on the horizon. Believing God for some great things tonight, I'm going to direct your attention to First Corinthians chapter number 15. And uh, if you have not been around here uh, much, you, you will know that we have been, or won't know that, but we've been going through verse by verse 1 Corinthians here. And so uh, we are in chapter number 15 tonight, and we're continuing on in verse number 20, I think is where we are going to start. And uh, Brother Blake, it's good to see you tonight, sir. God bless you. Amen. I know that they have been under the weather and it's always good to see him. And we're gonna, we're gonna pick up where we left off. Uh last week, we started chapter uh I'm, well, a couple of weeks ago. It may not have been last week. I can't even remember now. We started chapter 15. And this chapter is talking about the resurrection. The resurrection. And of course, there was a contingency, a group of people in the Corinthian church that did not believe in the resurrection. There was a um uh, they they believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. So basically, they just believe that we live this life now, and once it's over, it's over. And Paul comes out rather strong here in defense of the resurrection, and not only does he, he defend the resurrection, the, the truth of the resurrection, the coming resurrection, but then... He he really leaves no wiggle room, and and uh, he leaves us with he he, he literally it, it's like he's saying look you either believe in the resurrection or you don't believe in anything, and that's where we're going to end tonight. We're not going to get all the way through this chapter tonight, but we're going wh- where he ends it is basically you either believe in the resurrection or you do not believe in anything, and this is everything now. Paul, uh, uh, in his epistles, is great at teaching us doctrinal truths, but there are times where Paul says, look, this is what is right, but there may be some people that don't think this is what is right. And so he says, you know, work with them, live with them, deal with them, give give way, Uh, in Romans, I think it is, he says, give way to the weaker brethren. And so Paul defers to them for the sake of harmony, for the sake of unity. But here, Paul does not uh, act that way. He doesn't speak that way. You either believe in the resurrection or you have nothing. And by the resurrection, we're talking about the resurrection that we're looking to, the resurrection of this corruptible body, amen, to everlasting life. And so Paul doesn't give us any options. There's no other option. If you're going to be a believer in Christ, if you're going to be a disciple of Christ, if you're going to be a follower, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, if you are going to be a child of God, then you must believe in the resurrection, in the eternal life, the option for eternal life. And so Paul was very adamant about this. So he's answering these questions and he's dealing with it. We talked about that a little bit last week, first of all, and I won't rehash it, but if you, if, if you believe that Christ, either Christ rose from the dead or he didn't, and if he did rise from the dead, then there is a resurrection. If he didn't rise from the dead, then there is no resurrection. Or he flips it around the other way and says, if you say there is no resurrection, then Christ didn't rise from the dead. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then he's just another sorry person like you and me. And that's not, that's not that, that would have been uh, offensive to them. And so uh, we talked about that last week. I gave seven reasons why. Um, and, and we talked with all that. So, so we're going to pick up tonight, if we can, with chapter number 20. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is everything. It is the keystone of our faith. And then from that, so let me let me just say this before, before he reads. There are things in Scripture I don't have figured out. Thank you. Anybody else raise your hand? You okay, okay. There's a few ands, the rest of you, God bless you, you've got it all figured out. Amen. There are things that we don't have figured out, but this is one thing Paul says you've got to have figured out. This is one thing that you've got to have figured out. We can not have things figured out, we can even think differently on certain things and still be a part of the body of Christ. But this is one thing that you've got to have figured out. You you don't have, if you don't have this, you have nothing. That's that's what we're going to look at tonight, so let's go on. But now is Christ risen from the dead? Yes, and become the first fruits of them that slept. All right, the first fruits of those that sleep, or them that slept, those that have passed on. Okay, so this this concept here, Christ is the first fruits. That that has so much significance. We don't have time probably to unpack it all tonight. From from the from the from from. The Jewish concepts of faith, that he becomes the first fruits of them This He rose from the dead. He already goes through his argument, and says, okay, we agree that Christ rose from the dead. And if Christ rose from the dead, he is the first fruits. He testifies. Amen. He made a way. He made a way for corruptible flesh to take on incorruptible flesh. Supernatural. Amen. We saw him. We were witnesses, he says. We watched him. Remember what, what happened? Jesus appeared and disappeared. He walked through a wall he had a supernatural body, an incorruptible body. He was the first fruits of them. The first fruits of them that slept. Okay. Read on for since by man came death. Yes. By man came also the resurrection of the dead. Okay. So now he's going to, he's going to give us here two states or, or, or uh, two conditions, two conditions, two options here, two options. Uh, and, and I would propose to you, I, w- I want to be, I would propose to you, well, well, let's go through this. There's two options, for by, since man came death, by man also the resurrection of the dead. So what's he speaking of here? Well, we know, we know he's speaking of Adam, the first man. Genesis clearly teaches that Adam represents that first being, the first First man. Okay. And Adam sins. And by that sin, we have a corruptible inheritance. We all have to deal with the reality of death and not just the final state of death, but we have to deal with the reality of the process of death. So we we deal with that. We live with that. Our our bodies aging. In deterioration, if you will, that's what it means to be corruptible flesh. We are in process of deterioration. We can stay it for a lot, a, a while sometimes, but you, you, nobody has been able to stop it, to stop the process, to freeze the process. And then by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Well, who is who is that man that he's talking about? Well, he's talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh, okay? So he's not, uh, uh, he was not just an angel that came down. He was actually human flesh, and that is what qualified him to be the propitiation of our sins or the substitutionary sacrifice, the atonement, because, because of sin. The only way sin could be atoned was by the shedding of blood and not the shedding of blood of bulls and goats. That didn't didn't pay the price, but the shedding of man's own blood. And so Christ, when they sacrificed all those years in the Old Testament, that wasn't actually atoning. That was just testifying of the reality. That was just saying, hey, we're doing this knowing that there is coming someday an ultimate substitution that will be shed for us, okay, all right, read on. For as in Adam all die. Here it is, so he's talking about Adam. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ, yes, shall all be made alive. All right, so as in Adam we all die. So in the flesh, okay, there's, he, he is presenting this idea that there are two, if you will, two federal heads of your state of being. If you are in the corruptible, In the flesh, you have the inheritance of Adam, and that inheritance is death. But if you can be in Christ, partakers in Christ, Christ made the way. (laughs) We can have, anybody getting excited about this? We can inherit everlasting life, and just as... The stone on the tomb wasn't enough to keep him, neither will it be enough to keep us. So so Paul is presenting two options here, two classes. We're either we're either corruption, okay and we're, we're partakers in uh, uh, the process of death and that's our inheritance. that's final, that's total, okay, or we are in Christ and we have, this hope of everlasting life, the resurrection, amen, of the dead. He says, for as in Adam all die. Now we know that that all, as in Adam all die, we know that all is universal. That's applicable to all. No one escapes that. No one gets to choose. I don't, I'm not a part of that. But then when he goes on and says, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, that, that all is a qualified all because not every human being that lives is going to be in Christ. not every hu- that that is a choice that God has left up to us. He makes it available. He gives us the option. And so n- that's not not a doctrine of universalism, okay that teaches that well nothing matters because God's going to save everybody no because we go on it in the next verse, look at what it says. but every man in his own order, every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, yes. Afterward, they that are at Christ's at his coming. So he qualifies that all by saying, afterward, they that are Christ. Okay? So so in Adam all die, but in Christ, all, if we're in Christ, then all are made alive. So he gives us two options here. Okay? Two options. So I probably would. And, and and this is a point where we can we can disagree and go to heaven together, is that all right? But I probably would push back against. i um, I'm 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 a little nervous if you can't tell me saying this, against dispensationalism, because we don't see seven different places here, okay? Because dispensation says, well, there was a dispensation of innocence, there was a dispensation of of. Uh, you know, uh, of, uh, well, you can go through all of them law and they're judged according to all these different things. And, and, and then now we're in the church dispensation of grace and different things. And people are judged in each dispensation differently according to the time. And that, that is a, a, a doctrine that's really been popular in the last 200 years and has really been promoted in the church, um, some 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 uh, Blackstone, uh, G. Campbell Morgan, uh, Schofield, some of those others were really strong. And before uh, uh, the turn of the century, before people started using the Thompson Chain Bible, everybody in early Pentecost used Schofield's Bible, and uh, some of that stuff bled into uh, into our teachings and our 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 our, uh, our our church culture and kind of thing. But here, Paul says, there's two options. You're either in Adam. you're in Christ. Okay. So, so you, 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 if you're in Adam, there's no hope. The only hope you have is in Christ. Okay. And so these are the two options that he gives us. Now, now I can make a, uh, well, let's go on. He says, but every man in his own order. So now, now, well, you can go to Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. He says, For the wage, and Paul echoes what he's saying here. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So now in verse 23, Paul establishes, if you will, an order of resurrection. He establishes an order of resurrection. First, Christ. And when Christ resurrects, okay, after Christ then the dead in Christ resurrect, what does he say? At his his coming. So Paul's establishing an order. First, Christ resurrects, and then after that, he's already done the work, he's the firstfruits of them. Then he says afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. So when Christ returns... When Christ returns, the dead in Christ are going to rise again. They're going to be raised up. They're going to resurrect, okay? Now, he's going to go on later and we'll talk about this next, well, not next week. We won't have we won't have midweek, but the next time I'm up here teaching about this, we'll talk about this where um uh what was I saying? Oh, I know, the dead in Christ. Thank you, thank you. I, I forgot, it's been a long, it's been a long, month. long month. So just, just want to put that in there. Um, the dead, well, Paul says, look, they, they were arguing, well, well uh, can't have the resurrection until you die. Well, Paul says, no, us who are alive, we don't prevent, we don't prevent the resurrection from happening. We, can, we don't have to die to be partaker of the resurrection. And he talks about that later on, the dead in Christ. He says this isn't in Thessalonians, dead in Christ shall rise. Then we, which are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet him. And he talks about this here, though, that uh, our our corruptible will take uh, uh, incorruption. Our mortal shall put on immortality. So we don't have to die physically to be partaker. Whenever God chooses to come back, he's going to come back. And at that time, he says at his coming. Now, Now, that's pretty specific wording there if you look in verse 23. So if you're wondering when the resurrection takes place, there's your answer, okay? So what happens at his coming and afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Now, who are those in Christ? Some say, well, it's only the church or it's only those that have been uh, baptized, only those that have been baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Um, however, I want to take you to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 11. And I'm going to to, uh, show you some scriptures here that this, this ought to strengthen our faith. What we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a new revelation. It was not something new. It was the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament saints believed in. And so, just as they knew that when they offered blood of bulls and goats on altars and on the mercy seat, they knew that that wasn't uh, efficacious. They knew that that was not uh, complete. They knew that that was just uh, uh, a type and a shadow. They knew that that was not sufficient, that there had to be a Messiah that was coming. And it says in, in Hebrews chapter 11, I didn't give you the scripture, but let's do Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 13. And he's talking, he says, these all died, what? In faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So when Jesus, we're getting ready to celebrate the birth of Christ. That's one of the most incredible scenes in scripture uh, when Jesus is born and they bring him to the temple. Uh, is it Anna and uh, Simon that both prophesy over the child and prophesied over him, this is the Messiah. And how incredible that is. Zachariah is going in, in he's in the temple. His duty, his lot was to be the one who took the the, uh, coals from the altar to the altar of incense. He's he's fulfilling the act of intercession. And in that very ceremonial act, an angel appears to him and says, your prayer has been heard. And he prophesies to him that you're going to have a son who is the forerunner of the very one that is going to come and fulfill everything that you are carrying out in this temple right now. Mary sees an angel, speaks to her, and feels the babe in her womb. And in Luke chapter 1, she says, my Lord has become my Savior. <laughs> she saw, she knew what was happening. I mean, she's trying to imagine. They, they didn't wrap their mind totally around it. But they knew what was taking place. And, and Paul writes, well, if you believe Paul writes Hebrews, Uh, If you don't, well, then the author of Hebrews writes, these all died in faith, not ever received the promise. Amen. But they did all this by faith. And then you skip down to verse 39. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. God, that's to me a little confusing there. What God was saying was, they were not going to be made perfect. They were not going to be completed until the work of the Holy Ghost come. He He still gave them something to look forward to just because the drama of redemption was playing out. Amen. So when, when the dead in Christ raise, amen, praise God, they died, Paul says, they died in the faith. This happens at his coming. And then go to verse 24, if you will. Look at what it says. Read what it says in verse 24. Then cometh the end. All right. When he shall stop, Read that again slowly. Then cometh the end. That was perfect. Thank you. (laughs) Then cometh the end. If you have the KJV in front of you and you have, uh, what would I say, an annotated edition, you would see that the word cometh is in italics. Everybody see that in your Bible? If if you have it. The reason why they italicized that is they're letting you know that that was not in the original text, but they do believe that it was implied, so they put that in there. The ESV also, I think, reads, uh, then comes the end. The LITV, which is the Green's literal translation, some people have called it, nicknamed it the KJV3, and the modern King James Version both translate this same phrase, Then is the end. So now this is interesting. This is an interesting thing that Paul is saying. Now, I don't believe that you should take and build your whole chronology of eschatology out of this passage of Scripture because that's not what Paul is dealing with. Paul is making a defense of the resurrection here. But what Paul does say is he says, Christ is a firstfruits. After that, they that are Christ are going to be raised at his coming. Then is the end. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no time there or no play out of things, but what he's establishing here, when he says the end there, he means it's complete or it's fulfilled. Everything has been accomplished. God's purposes have been accomplished. It's been achieved. Now, read on what he says, and this is what he's talking about. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God. When he Father. shall... Okay, get this. Let's not, let's not go too fast. Try to wrap your mind around this. The end is coming. When everything's fulfilled, when everything's completed, he will deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father. Okay? Read on. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. And all power. Amen. All rule, all authority, and all power. So Christ is is coming and he's building a kingdom and and Christ in victory is going to put down all rule, all authority, all power. Amen. And I want to tell you, when he comes back, you ain't never seen anything like it. I can't even comprehend it because standing on the Mount of Olives, the Bible says that when he comes down, the Mount of Olives is going to split. He's going to come through the Eastern Gate, which right now is all walled up, by the way. Did you know that? Suleiman the Great, about 500 and some years ago, walled up the eastern wall because he knew that the Jews believed that their Messiah would come through the eastern wall. He also knew that no Jewish person would defile himself among the dead, and so Suleiman the Great uh, uh, put a graveyard right at the base of the wall of the of the gate. So he said, he, it was like he did everything. Ah, your Messiah's not coming. There's a wall and there's a graveyard. And no Messiah would go through a graveyard because if they do, they're ceremonially unclean. They would defile themselves. But Suleiman didn't read all the story because what he doesn't know is that our Messiah can raise the dead and he shall walk through walls. You he did now, I don't know if he's going to do that. I don't know how, but I do know that what his word says is going to come to pass. And so when he comes back, you've never seen nothing like it. And he's going to reign supreme. And he is coming back. Can I say that again? He is coming back. That's not up for debate. We can't, the, here, here's one thing. Some people take the Bible and say, well, the Bible is great. It's a good allegory. It's a story about good and evil. What Paul is saying is no, there's no room for that in the church. Jesus is a real person who came down, who died, who was buried, who rose from the grave, and who is coming back again. He is the living God. He is the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father. And He He is the manifest of God in the flesh, come down to, 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 to die for our sins, but He is also our deliverer. He's our salva- is our Savior, our Messiah. And he's coming, and he is going to deliver to deliver up the kingdom to God. Now, his kingdom is not his kingdom is not a kingdom of this world, but his kingdom is a different kingdom. But his kingdom, yet though it's different, it's a kingdom of the hearts of men. It will overthrow all rule, all authority, and all power. And then, now, and and, and follow follow along with me here because this is important. Christ is going to deliver that kingdom up to God. Somebody says, okay, that, that, that's a little confusing. I'm glad you asked. We're going to talk about that. Okay, read on. Or he must reign. So Christ must reign, yes, till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Yes, till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. The last enemy. Now, what are we talking about here in chapter 15? Now, Paul is giving us some information about some other things, but what's the main thing we're talking about in chapter 15? We are talking about the resurrection, the resurrection of our bodies, amen, to everlasting life. That's our hope. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And where is death destroyed? It is destroyed in the resurrection. He writes elsewhere, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? All right, so Christ is going to deliver up the kingdom to God, okay? He must reign till he's put all enemies under his feet, all right? The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. He's still talking about the end of all things here. Read in verse, I want you to read verse 27 here. Or he hath put all things under his feet. Yes, so he's he's talking about Christ when he's conquered at the end, yes. When he saith all things are put under him, mm-hmm. it is manifest that he is accepted, yes, which did put all things under him. All right. So it is manifest that he is accepted. What does that mean? That means that all things are fulfilled. It's complete. His his role, his work, his work of atoning, his work, uh, uh, the sonship of Jesus Christ has completed it. He has fulfilled it. Okay. and And he's done that. All right. Read verse 28. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, when all things are subdued to Christ, yes, then shall the son also be subject himself be subject unto him that put all things under him. Then shall the son, yes, also, also himself be subject unto him, yes. That put all things under him, right? That God may be all in all. That God may be all in all. So let's let's stop here and let's work backwards. So he's there is clear language here distinguishing between god okay the father and the work of the son so we're not we're not making that up you can see that here clearly in the text and at the end of all things god is that god may be all in all now this is not what eastern religion propagates that god is in everything god is everywhere god is everything no that's not it what it's saying that god may be all in all that his authority that the authority of god is fully established forever and there never again will be any threat or any rebellion or any uprising over him again it's done okay so um This is the end. He's speaking to the end. He's talking about the resurrection of our hope, our final state here. And the son is going to deliver up the kingdom to the father that God may be all in all, okay? So he also says uh, he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Uh, And then it says it's gonna be manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. Now, some people look at this and some people have said that, now, now we believe in one God, amen, one God and Father of all who is above all and in, uh, uh, through all and in you all, amen, all right? That one God manifests himself in different ways, so we do not believe that, um, well, and I say we don't believe. The Bible does not teach that when we get to heaven, there's going to be three different thr- thrones because we see God manifest as the Father, or we, we, we know God is the Father. He's the Father of all, the Father of creation. We see God manifest as the Son, and we see God working um, as Holy Spirit in us. Okay, So when we get to heaven, there's not three thrones. That's why we do not uh, agree with the traditional interpretation of the Trinity, which there was many different interpretations originally. That's something that's lost a little bit in history, but the traditional interpretation was uh, three distinct, and then you'll hear it to co-equal, co-eternal persons. The term person is only used in Scripture for Jesus Christ, okay, the Son. The term person is never used for the Holy Spirit. The term person is never used for the Father, the person of Jesus Christ. Well, He he was a person because he was God manifest in the flesh in order for, in order for his sacrifice to be, uh, uh, his, the sacrifice of his life to be efficacious. Uh, uh, he had to be a, a, a true human being to be the substitutionary sacrifice. But, but I mean, this, this is the mystery of the incarnation. He was, he was fully God and he was fully man. Okay. How does God, eternal, God, uh, everything, how does he become and robe himself in flesh? But the Bible says this, Jesus said this, of God, no man hath seen God at any time. No man hath seen, you can't comprehend God. God is so great that you can't comprehend it. We will, we will never be able to fully comprehend God because we are finite. We are created even in our supernatural state. Okay. Even in our, uh, uh, and and I don't understand how everything's going to be, but even in our incorruptible state, amen. When we get to the book of Revelation, when we see the end of all things, who do we see? We see the ancient of days who turns out to be Jesus Christ. Okay. Revelation chapter one, verse 17 this this is why we some people take this passage from 1 Corinthians and say well when when Jesus Christ is finished doing his work maybe he'll be done away with and God will be all in all and Christ will go away but that's not right because in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17 it says this is what John says and when I saw him I fell at his feet as dead and he laid his right hand upon me saying unto me fear not I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth, and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. So Jesus says, look, I'm alive forevermore. He is, amen, the image of God. He is the express image of God. In him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead, amen. But God, uh, uh, from everlasting to everlasting, has made himself God unknowable. He's unknowable. I mean, think about this in this context. You can't even wrap your mind. God eternal. God without beginning. How how do you even think about that? Well, let's think about one. I don't even know what's the highest math number now that they're up to. I know we used to say a gazillion, but it's like, I don't even know if you Googled it, there is a number that's the highest calculable number that we have, you know, you you start off hundred, thousand, million, billion, trillion, and then you get to whatever. Huh? What? Gugillion? Is that the highest? Gugillion. See, praise God. I didn't even know that. Gugillion. If you go back Gugillion, Gugillion years. (laughs) See, I've, I've already lost myself. God's still there. And you haven't gotten any closer to his beginning. See, he's unknowable. But God unknowable made himself knowable. And God, outside of time and space, and this is a major Jewish concept, outside of time and space, stepped in, he created time and space, and then he stepped into time and space and came down and dwelt among us. Yes. And when we see Jesus, we are seeing the fullness of the Godhead. We are seeing all of God's love. We are seeing all of his mercy. Yes. But don't think for a minute that you're exhausting because right. your mind can't even begin. Yeah. And that's why the song says, uh, Amazing Grace, what it say? Uh, uh, w- when we've been there 10,000 years. <laughs> right. When we've been there, googillion years. You should rewrite the verse. We've no less than... I mean, just imagine, like, we, we're we not any closer to the end than when we've been there. And yet God is above all of that. So God, who's unknowable, makes himself knowable. Amen. He makes himself knowable. And he defines himself to us, and he lets us be known. And he comes down. That's why. That's why... Jesus Christ is the only begotten of the Father, okay? So he is God's manifestation, the express image. He is the revelation of God to man, okay? And that's, that's what the last book in your Bible is about, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's revealing that Messiah is more than even who he says. He's the Ancient of Days. He's, he's, he's the great Eternal One. But but these roles still play out, and Paul still talks about this because Christ uh, uh, is is bringing the kingdom. The purpose of the incarnation. Let's, let's say in this in this, the purpose of the incarnation. Christ is God incarnate. Okay, the purpose of the incarnation is to is that God may be all in all, that every knee will bow, every tongue confess that He is Lord that there will be no more, that his authority then will be absolute, that every mind will know, every conscience will know. And there will be no more rebellion. There will be no more turning. That which is evil will be done away with. And 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 then we're going to live in his kingdom, in his glory for eternity, for everlasting. And we have that hope of everlasting life. Amen? So the best way I could describe it, and this is a bad analogy, okay? So forgive me, this is a bad analogy. Because it's a human analogy. And anytime you try to make an analogy about God, it's always going to fail. It's never going to be sufficient. It's never going to be enough. But imagine this. Have you ever heard of the show Undercover Boss? Okay. Where the CEO or the chief executive officer, the head honcho, whatever, comes down and takes on another role and starts off in somewhere in middle management, somewhere around, hey, tell me what doing... And these people have no clue how high the brass, how high this person, how high the executive is. They think this is just Bob from, you know, this is just Bob from HR that's here to help work some things out. They do not realize who this is. And he comes down and he works in there to reconcile things and to get everything right. The difference, the problem with this analogy is that this is a human analogy. So we know in Undercover Boss, if I, for instance, let's say, am the chief executive officer and I'm going to insert myself into the corporation secretly, I have to vacate my seat. I can't be in two places at one time. I'm finite. I'm limited. But God is not a man, right? And so if God says, I'm going to come down there and I'm going to take care of it and I'm going to be everything they need and I will pay the price and I will take the penalty and I will take the pain, When God comes down and he steps from heaven into earth, he does not vacate his seat because he's still God. And so the work of the Son, the work of Jesus Christ as God incarnate, he's still God. He's still God eternal. He's still God from everlasting. But the only begotten of the Father comes down that he can work around, that he's going to build a kingdom. And when he's done with that, he is delivering that kingdom back up that God may be all in all. But that does not take away, amen, from the fact that there is still only one God. Does everybody follow me? Everybody understand what's going on there? And so sometimes people look at this and they say, "Aha! There we see this." And they try and they try to reconcile. I've I've, I've got a a good a, a, a good traditional trinitarian study Bible here, and it's trying to jump over all kinds of hoops and loops, trying to figure it out. And says, "But and 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 it's saying that Christ will reign in His former, full and glorious place within the Trinity, subject to God in a way eternally designed for Him." in full Trinitarian glory. But I don't even know what that's saying. Because if, if, if you take the Trinity to be co-equal, co-eternal, how can you be co-equal if you're subject? How can you be co-equal and, and, and be subordinate at the same time? How can you be co-eternal if you're begotten, if you have a beginning, if you had a starting, if you have a, a moment that was spoken? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ, and I proposed this to you before, this is not new, is the beginning. The moment God chose to reveal himself, the moment God chose to define himself, amen, is that moment, that time, I think the time-space conundrum happened. That's just my personal opinion, that that, that is where that began, amen. He is the beginning. That's why he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God knew that when he created man and he gave everyone free will, he knew there was going to be a mess. He knew they'd run away from him. He knew all that happened. So before he even spoke the world into existence, he said, I'm going to have a way by which they can be saved. I'm going to have a way by which they can be redeemed. I know they may make a mistake, but you know what? I'm going to love them enough. I'm going to pay the price. I'm already going to prepare the way. Amen. And so this is a powerful thing. So what is the resurrection? The resurrection, amen, that we partake in is the culmination of everything. It is us, amen, joining together with him. Yes, yes, you and I, poor, despicable, amen, corruptible flesh, have the privilege that we can step out of, amen, the inheritance that we are born into by Adam, and we can step into Christ, amen, washed in his blood, sanctified by his spirit, amen, and we can have a hope of everlasting life together with him, praise God, hallelujah, hallelujah, somebody say praise the Lord, amen, I've got, I've got to hurry, hallelujah. All right, now, I got two more critical points to make, and I don't know if I have enough time, but we're going to try. Verse 29 is a very difficult passage, okay? We'll just start off with this. I want you to read verse 29, okay? So he just makes this case, and he makes this argument. Praise God. Go to verse 29. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? Okay. Okay. All right. What does this mean? This is uh, a confusing passage. And again, we're reading a response to a letter, so we're not sure everything that is going on here, what Paul's referring to. There are some possible interpretations. I'm going to give you a few possible interpretations. Paul says, because Paul's making this case for the resurrection, and then out of left field, seemingly out of nowhere, he's trying to illustrate his point, and our only hope in eternity is the resurrection, else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? Okay, this is true. So he's proving the point. If there's no resurrection, why are they getting baptized for the dead? Nowhere else in Scripture, nowhere else in the Old Testament is there ever a hint or a nod to anyone being baptized for the dead. So here are some possible interpretations best uh, known to some uh, scholars. Number one, the first interpretation is some people believe that it is possible that they were practicing baptism for the dead in the church at Corinth while not believing in the resurrection, which perhaps a small number of them were being baptized on behalf of, some say maybe they were being baptized, bless you, on behalf of Christian friends or family who wanted to be baptized but died before they were able to be baptized. That's one, but we don't really know. The second interpretation is that they were speaking of being baptized for their deadness in sin, okay? So, for instance, Paul uses this terminology that we are raised to life. So Paul's terminology is that until you're in Christ, you're dead, and you're not alive until after that. Some say, well, maybe that's what they were talking about. Their bodies are dying or in decay and then they're baptized on behalf of their dying bodies, okay? And then the third, a third possible interpretation, and this is not conclusive there, could be others, is that those who are baptized refer to those who come to Christ because of others that are already passed on to Christ. So a mother, a father, a neighbor, an acquaintance is a Christian. They die, but because of their life and their witness and their testimony, someone else becomes a convert, and they're not baptized for them, but they're, they're baptized to be with them in that sense. You want to see them again? You want to look? You, you know, there's the, have the same hope that they are, so they're baptized with the hope that someday they would they would see be with them. Okay, so I cannot, and I don't think anyone can authoritatively say which of these, if any, is what Paul is actually addressing. So when we come to this passage of Scripture, because there is no other single reference, it is out of uh, uh, order from the rest of passage of Scripture and uh, Jewish or Christian tradition, um, we would say we, we can identify what it, sometimes when we can't identify what it is saying, we have to identify what it is not saying. What it is not saying is this. Number one, there is no verse in Scripture that teaches to be baptized for the dead. So if somebody dies and I go get baptized in proxy, that that's going to save them. There's no verse in Scripture that teaches that. In fact, that would be contrary to what Scripture teaches, where the person being baptized has to have a a consciousness of faith. The Apostolic Study Bible in the commentary said this, given that faith of the one being baptized is critical to baptism, Paul's reference cannot mean the rite of baptism for the dead should be practiced. This is the same reason why we do not baptize babies or infants, because they can't make that decision. I can't make that decision for them. Man, I wish I could. But baptize them all right now. Baptize them every day. Praise God. You can't make that decision for them. We each have to make our own conscious. Decision to follow Christ. No one can repent for you, but you. No one can follow Christ, but you. Amen? All right. What's the old song say? Not my mother, not my father, but it's me, O Lord. Yeah. So the other thing we know is that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. So there's nothing else here. There's no other reference here. There is no Old Testament type that would even closely allude to baptism for the dead. in, In fact, obviously, it's quite contrary. Everyone must and can only be responsible for their own salvation. In the Old Testament, no one could go through the ritual cleansing in proxy for you. You had to do it. In fact, if somebody else was contaminated and they contaminated you and it wasn't even your fault, you still were responsible. So there was never any out. This is repeated throughout Scripture. You cannot guarantee the salvation of your children or of your parents or of your spouse. The ESV study Bible uh, gave a a good line, and I thought it was worth uh, quoting here. It said, but the interpretation, speaking of this verse, is uncertain, and whatever the practice is, whatever that is, Paul reports it without necessarily approving it and is clearly not commanding it. So Paul here is referencing something. We don't know what, but he's using it to illustrate the truth. Amen. That there is or there must be a resurrection. Now let's go on to the next verse. Let's read on. And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? All right, so we're still talking about the resurrection. We read this last week. And and I'm I'm closing with this, so uh, we'll wrap up right here. Why stand we in jeopardy every hour? If there is no resurrection, why am I putting my life? Paul says, in harm's way. If if this is it, then why am I not living out my Christian life in the safety? Why why am I risking everything? If this is it, what does it matter? No. But because there is a resurrection, that means there is an option to partake in it as well as an option to miss out on it. And what mat- because there is an eternal resurrection, what matters on this earth really doesn't matter as much as what's happening up there. What happens up there. And I've got to make it. And I've got to get as many people to make it at the risk of losing everything. Can I get an amen? Amen. 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 So, and I don't want to miss this. Read on. I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. Okay, so Paul says, look. He said, I protest by your rejoicing. He's talking about their lifestyle. He's getting ready to to talk to them about their lifestyle. He said, I protest by your rejoicing which I have in Christ, our Lord, I die daily. Look, I'm putting my life in jeopardy. I die daily Every And we've quoted that verse often just talking about how we crucify ourselves. I'm going through all these things. If there is no resurrection, why, why am I doing this? Why am I living under conviction? Why am I living under the conviction of the Lord? Why am I doing this? Why am I sacrificing? What What's the point? If there's no resurrection, what does it matter? I die daily. Paul said, "Look, my life is testifying. My life. I, I'm I'm the foolish one." He said earlier, "I am of all men. I am of all men most miserable." Okay, read on. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, yes, what advantage it be if the dead rise not? All right. Oops. If I, why, why am I going through persecution? Uh, I, 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 we don't know if he's if he's referencing. Uh, something that they would have known, or this is something that he actually had to deal with. We you know Paul had to deal with a lot of things. He was left left for dead after a stoning once. He was shipwrecked. I mean, how many times was he imprisoned? He was beaten, left for dead. I mean, multiple things. And and here, what, I don't, we, we're not really sure exactly. If I fall with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth me if the dead rise not? If there's no resurrection, why am I doing all of this? And then look at what he says. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there is no resurrection, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You ever heard that before? Well, maybe you haven't heard it that way, but maybe you've heard it this way. You only live once. You ever hear that attitude? That, that, well, you only live once. Just live it up. Don't With no regard to anything. You only live once. Okay? So this is what Paul says. Look, if there is no resurrection, then just make the most of everything. Live. Don't live by principle live for pleasure. But Paul says, no, I subdue the flesh. I don't live by pleasure. I die daily because I'm open, amen, to not inherit only what Adam has sent, but I want to inherit, inherit what Christ has given me an opportunity to be alive in Christ, to live forever, okay? So he's telling us, don't live like this. Look at what he says. Go on. Be not deceived. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. All right? Evil communication, that's not just talking. That's lifestyle. That old English word there means lifestyle. Evil lifestyle corrupts morals. It's your manner. It corrupts everything. All right? Read on. Awake to righteousness. Awake to righteousness. And sin not. And sin not. Why? Because there is a resurrection. If there is no resurrection, well, you, you sit on. right? So Paul says, this is not an option. There has to be a resurrection, and you have to believe in a resurrection, and it's the fact of the resurrection that challenges you to step out of sin. Praise God. All right, read on. For some have not the knowledge of God. For some have not the knowledge of God, yes. I speak this to your shame. All right, he says, some of you, you're living living like hellions. Because you don't have the knowledge of God. You don't know what's going on. And he said, I speak this to your shame. There is a resurrection to be partaking in. The ESV says it this way. It says, and the ESV, 1 Corinthians 15, and I think they have it here. The ESV says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Be careful. Paul says, look, there's a resurrection. Be careful how you live. So careful that even be careful what company you keep. Be careful what things are in your life because you don't want the corruptible things of this life. You don't want that, well, let's let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Don't let that attitude dominate your life. Don't let that philosophy, don't let that cultural mindset, don't let that societal mindset get into your heart. Don't, don't just go around saying, well, you only live once. Let's just do whatever. No, he says there is a resurrection to partake in. Keep yourself righteous. He says, Awaken to righteousness. In the ESV, it says it this way: it says, Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to you: Wake up from these things. Let your life be arrested. You're not just playing, amen, with the moments that God has gifted you in this life, you are playing with eternity. And eternity is everything. Here's what I want to tell you tonight. Thank God for the cross. And we preach the cross, cr- him crucified. We thank God for the cross. But preaching the cross is not enough. Thank God for his love because that's his love. Thank God for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We preach the empty tomb because that's what gives us, amen, the hope. Because if he resurrected, amen, then I have a hope to resurrect. And what Paul says is preaching the cross is not enough and preaching the empty tomb is not enough. If you do not preach that there is an everlasting resurrection, you have nothing to pull you out of your sins. You have to preach that there is an eternity. There is an eternal reward to gain. There is an eternal judgment to shun. And this is what motivates me to say, hey, it's going to be worth it all. I'm going to give up everything. I'll give my life to Christ. This, this hope, it's this hope amen, that causes men and women to lay down their careers and march around the other side of the world to find people that they don't even know how to talk to, to find a way somehow to share them uh, the news of the love of God, that that God that is unknowable made himself knowable and came down and he died on a cross and you don't have to die without hope, but there is hope in this life, amen, beyond this life there's a hope, of a resurrection. Amen. Stand together with me tonight. Stand together with me tonight. Can we thank the Lord tonight? Come on, can we thank the Lord tonight? God, I thank you that I have a hope. I thank you, Lord, that I have a hope in you. I thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. That I can look beyond this life, beyond the trouble and the pain and the death and the sorrow, and I can know, Lord, that there is a place, God, a place of perfect peace, a place of perfect rest. God, where we are with you, God, a place where evil is done away with, where you will be all in all. Oh, hallelujah. A place, God. Hallelujah, where there's no more tears and no more pain, God. It's righteousness and holy and purity. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. Come on, it's the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is everything and I want to make it. I don't want to miss it. Come on. It is everything. My life. I've got to make it. 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 This is everything. Paul says, look, you you can't go on being a church without, without preaching the resurrection. You can't go on being a people of God without preaching the resurrection. You'll, You'll lose everything. You'll compromise every time you'll fall back into your sin. But if you know there's a hope beyond this life well then then it's going to make the difference i want our children to come on down amen our youth I don't, they'll they'll come out.